Um, it is my great honor to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Brian Bantam. Since receiving his doctorate from Duke University in 2009, Dr. Bantam has worked at Seattle Pacific University and Seminary, where he's currently Associate Professor of Theology. In addition to numerous articles and chapters, Dr. Bantam is the author of two books, a path-breaking, truly path-breaking exploration of theology and mixed-race identity that's titled Redeeming Mulatto, A Theology of Race and Christian Hybridity. And if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. And more recently, a book titled The Death of Race, Building a New Christianity in a Racial World. Dr. Bantam has built a reputation for bringing theological wisdom to pressing contemporary social, cultural, and political matters, and doing so, to my mind, in a manner that combines elegance and boldness in equal measure. So it gives me an enormous pleasure to introduce his lecture, which is entitled Clothed in Flesh, The Artist, Liberation, and the Future of Bartian Theology. Thanks ever so much. Thank you so much, Paul, for that kind introduction. Um, and um, thank you all so much for being here. Um, I want to thank uh, Kate Dugan and the BART Center and Paul uh, for the invitation to participate in this year's conference. Uh, it's a tremendous honor uh, to be with such distinguished company um, on such a critical topic um, at such a time as this. And I'm also thankful because in all honesty, I'll be, I'm gonna be really honest here, um, I hadn't read Bart in a few years. It's been a minute. Um, apart from a few snippets that I continue to assign in classes, uh, a dead white Swiss theologian was not the first place I went when trying to make sense of the world we find ourselves in and what it might look like to inhabit something of God's kingdom. Instead of Bart, I have been reading the poetry of Claudia Rankin, Kelly Brown Douglas's Stand Your Ground, Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands, La Frontera, and more recently, Patrice Kahn Culler's brilliant book, When They Call You a Terrorist. Bart seemed far down the list. And then I received the invitation to be with you all here. And the first book that came immediately to mind was Bart's commentary on Romans. And so I pulled it from my shelf and sat in my torn faux leather chair um, and began with his exegesis of Romans chapter one and, wrote, and read those first descriptions of Paul. Quote, Paul is no genius of rejoice, rejoicing in his creative ability. Now we certainly would not mistake Bart for a liberation theologian, although maybe to hear some of the presentations here we might. Uh, but it would be a mistake to read Bard as being unconcerned with our bondage or our freedom. But how might we understand Bart's significance today? Does Bart speak? Should he? And what of the Bardians? We could make the case historically, perhaps, that Bart was speaking to a moment of, a, of radical income inequality, the dehumanizing consumption of workers in an ever-growing violent ethnic nationalism, and the parallels are haunting. Perhaps then we should ask, WWBD, what would Bart do? 
We could point to his epistemological shift of radical difference between creator and created. We could outline how, his gesture, how this gesture gestures towards the centrality of Israel and Jesus as a Jew, served as a bewildering rebuttal to the anti-Semitism and racism of his moment. We could suggest his model of reappropriation and reimagination of key figures in tradition, whether Anselm or Calvin or many others, and how they might point us toward a way of framing contemporary challenges while not seemingly forsaking the pillars of European Christian tradition. But I want to suggest to us today that intertwined with the argument of Barth's theological project, Barth's commentary on Romans can be read as an aesthetic or artistic project, a quote-unquote word clothed in, in flesh, if you will. And that the future of Bardian theology, if it is to realize its liberative possibilities in our current world, has its deepest resources in the reciprocity of argument and form that Bart, perhaps unwittingly, displays in his commentary most directly, but which I believe we see throughout his work and especially in his church dogmatics. In Romans, Bart offers a confession that, Roman, that arises out of a confrontation, an encounter. And this encounter is not singularly his, but in Romans, we come to see that it is a shared encounter. We experience something alongside Paul. And out of this encounter, we come to discover a common condition, a situation that oppresses us and that God, has, that God seeks to meet us within. And as we consider the relationship between liberation, theology, and Karl Barth, we need to ask what this common condition is. Paul is caught between internal recognition and external encounter. He is not a thinker, a theologian. He is found held, struck, and must navigate this holding that propels him into a life that is not his, according to Bart. Bart's claims concerning knowledge are clear here, but Bart's form, his urgency, draws us into Paul's condition and into his situation. And in doing so, Bart exercises a literary device, shifting the point of view of the reader from an objective analysis of a text to a subject within the text. The argument is only partially the exegesis of the passages or the unfolding of the argument. Paul is not simply a writer of a letter. For Bart, he is the co-subject of the text, a text that is participating in a story that unfolds in the world that we find ourselves in. And in confronting this world, Bart's commentary is a stripping, a tearing away at the objectivity of our condition or the possibility of a quote-unquote scientific inquiry. In this way, we see his approach to exegesis in Romans already displaying the character of John in Grudewald's Isenheim altarpiece, which I'm sure all of you know. It's the, it's the crucifixion of the altarpiece. John the Baptist is pointing towards Jesus, and Bart often says, right, this is what theology is, is we point to God. And so um, Bart famously refers to John the Baptist pointing to the crucified God, and this is the task of theology. And yet, while this gesture suggests a differentiation, John is still in the picture. He is part of the narrative. More than a dial than dialectic method or infinite, infinite qualitative, qualitative difference, 
even the question of epistemology and revelation, the significance and hope in Bart's thought and writing resides in its underlying aesthetic and artistic sensibility. And I do not think it is incidental that for liberation theologians who draw upon Bart, it is this penetrating sense of presence and involvement that they point to. The underlying character of encounter that permeates Bart's theological assertions and his style are we are always in the world. We are indicted or promised to or seen or seeing. We are in the image. We are pointing to a word who is present. Bart's preface to the second edition frames the task in light of contemporary scholarship in this way. He says, when an investigation is rightly conducted, boulders composed of fortuitous or incidental or merely historical conceptions ought to disappear almost entirely. The word ought to be exposed in the words. Intelligent comment means that I am driven on till I stand with nothing before me but the enigma of the matter, till the document seems hardly to exist as a document, till I have almost forgotten that I am not its author, till I know the author so well that I allow him to speak in my name and even be able to speak in his name myself. Bart's critique of certain scientific approaches to scripture and his analogy of removal, excavation, brings to mind conversations of the Paragone among Renaissance artists, debates about which art form can better express the true and thereby which artist can better express truth. While perhaps a somewhat odd reference in a conversation about Bart's theology, the Paragone debates exemplified the European fascination with knowledge, truth, and classification, and most importantly, the ways this truth is expressed, mastered, or discovered in the material world. The artists of the Renaissance were, were not simply craftsmen, but were beginning to understand themselves as intellectuals and their work as exercises in knowing and discovery. In comparisons between sculpture and painting, sculptors would claim that they and their methods were ideal because a deeper truth lay in creating a three-dimensional object, something that you could walk around, that you could see. But in order to create these objects, you had to shape, you had to remove, you had to shape off. In order to discover the truth that an object holds, you had to take something away. Bart's project in Romans, it seems to me, has this sculptural quality where he seeks truth, God, through excision, through violent depressions and negations, the night, the refusals of what can be known, page by page, chips, sands, splits Romans, and ultimately the reader. Every negation, every slab of stone cleaved from the whole is both freeing and revealing. Returning again to his preface, Bart says, can scientific investigation ever really triumph so long as men refuse to busy themselves with this question, or so long as they are content to engage themselves with amazing energy upon the work of interpretation, with the most superficial understanding of what interpretation really is? For me, at any rate, the question of the true nature of interpretation 
is the supreme question? Or is it that the, these learned men, for whose learning and erudition I have such genuine respect, fail to recognize the existence of any real substance at all, of any underlying problem, of any word in the words? Do they not perceive that they are documents such as the books of the New Testament, which compel men to speak at whatever cost, because they find in them that which urgently and finally concerns the very marrow of human civilization? Now far from abstraction, in every strike of a hammer upon the chisel, Bart has in mind a material moment, a way the no-god has coiled itself around us to the point that we mistake stank air for life and quell or kill any semblance of truth that disrupts our illusion of freedom and knowledge. The stripping away of falsehood presuppositions is an act of liberation, we might even say, excavating to a central concern of who we are and who God is. And to say that we are not is the first moment of recognizing this reality that enables us to move towards a true inhabitation of Christ's life and mission. But where sculpture remains an object grounded in one place, Bart's literary excavation works upon us in multiple spaces. The quote unquote we of his work is not incidental. It is not a universal we, it is a particular we. In this regard, the second aspect of Bart's commentary that I want to point out is his use of literary tropes, of character, of point of view, metaphor, and narrative arc as he explicates Paul's text. The slippage of first, second person plural, third person throughout Romans, coupled with its negation, negation places the reader within the paradox of Bart's argument. We do not know but we are nonetheless encountered. There is mystery and presence, an accounting of existence that cannot be negated completely because it experiences something here and now. We are John in the painting at the cross, pointing to the one who has died for us. Now Bart's Romans text mirrors Kierkegaard, I think, in thought and form not only in its resistance to epistemological and cultural hubris, but also in the use of metaphor and character to unfold a theological and, or philosophical question. Paul is not simply a writer in Bart's commentary, but one whose character and whose person seems to unfold over the course of the letter. Paul changes from the beginning to the end. The narrative unfolds in particular ways. Paul begins as a servant, not a master, as an impossibility. He belongs to them indeed as he belongs to the many, until finally in him the void becomes visible. And these are all just descriptions in the first five or six pages of, his, of the commentary. And in these first few pages, exegeting Paul's simple greeting, Bart infuses him with character and action with a story of encounter and himself caught in a crisis. Paul is not simply a writer or a thinker in Bart's Romans. Paul is both a person encountered and a metaphor for the theologian and for the human being encountered by God. As Bart's exegesis unfolds, we are caught within this story. We too are implicated in the conditions of refusal. 
where, quote, submerged and hidden is the true ground of our existence. Unrecognized is the unknown God, fruitless the traces of his faithfulness, unused his promises and gifts, end quote. The interrelationship of artistic and theological claims are made plain um, when he's commenting on Romans 17. He writes, here is the impossibility of knowing, the impossibility of resurrection, the impossibility of God, creator and redeemer, in whom here and there are both one. Abraham is brought within the scope of the impossibility by faith, itself the non-historical and impossible factor which makes possible and by which history is established. A similar faith appears on the borderland of philosophy of Plato, of the art of Grunewald and Dostoevsky, and of the religion of Luther. And yet it must not be supposed that knowledge is a fortuitous thing, the re that resurrection is a contingent happening, and that God is bound to the contradiction between here and there. God is pure negation. He is both here and there. Now, when teaching passages like this, my students come away forlorn. They say, what do you mean there is nothing that we can know? God is negation? But, God, but here, Barthes' gesture towards artists is especially helpful. And here I want to return us to the analogy of sculpture. Whether carving or casting, form emerges from removal. And creating these gaps is what creates depth in certain ways. And so at certain points in Romans, Bart refers to the crater left by God's acts. This cratering is not destruction, but the indentation of presence upon us and in us. The negation is an assertion of what we are, an assertion and promise of presence. It is, a, it is shape and form rather than an endless plane without depth or sight or height. By the end of Romans, Bart suggests to us that, quote, here we have opened out before us a little world, the last line of his commentary. And so by the end of the epistle, we have an exhortation against Paulinism and a warning against ourselves. Bart's epistle to the Romans is a spiritual and literary contestation of a world whose words had failed. And through words, Bart displayed a confusion of language and perspective. History, time, point of view, all are reconfigured in a treatise meant not to clarify what we are, to capture the perfection of form and reason and insight. Instead, it is a story, akin to Kierkegaard's fear and trembling, or Dostoevsky's brother, brother's Karamazov that immerses us into a presence that always confounds us. We want to say that we cannot know, but we cannot say that we are not encountered, that there is no presence, that we do not exist in this moment and therefore must account for something in our world. We too are excavated, chipped away, sanded down until a new shape begins to emerge until we begin to see that what constitutes our lives is more than what we had imagined as an individual and cannot be accounted for without this God who presses us. Now, if Bart's work in the commentary on Romans was sculptural, speaking through excision and removal, perhaps we might consider his work in dogmatics as the other side of the paragone, as painting. 
Now, Renaissance artists who considered painting the higher art suggested that painting allowed the artist to display whole scenes, whether a landscape or a vast array of characters, that it required deeper intellectual work and skill because perspective, shade, light, and dark were not byproducts of a physical process, but had to be created seemingly out of nothing and brought into being by the artist's skill and insight and craft. And so I've often wondered why a man so sure that we could not know would go on to write so much. But the painting analogy seems to help me see something of what Bart is doing in his work in the dogmatics. Through a painstaking process of mixing, of creating basic layers, outlining shapes, beginning with dark spaces first, then adding highlights with each subsequent layer, Bart's church dogmatics slowly builds an image, layer by layer, each facet of the argument seemingly drawing us off the ground, we might say, to survey the land around us, or submerging us into the shadow of a cliff to where we can only see something, the, the, the rock in front of us. While Bart claims not to be a musicologist, one cannot help but wonder if dogmatics display some of the qualities he admired most in his beloved artist Mozart. For Bart, talking about Mozart, he says, quote, what occurs in Mozart is, is rather a glorious upsetting of the balance, a turning in which the light rises and the shadows fall, though without disappearing, in which joy overtakes sorrow without extinguishing it, in which the yea rings louder than the ever-present nay. Note the reversal of the great dark in the small light episodes in Mozart's life." End quote. When we turn to church dogmatics, while certainly a scholarly exercise, we see several of these literary tropes exercised in Romans unfolding again, where Romans began with the character, Paul, one under question, one who had been encountered and was bound to the one calling him. In church dogmatics, we are introduced to the main character, the church. He says, the church confesses God as it talks about God. He goes on, as it confesses God, the church also confesses both humanity and the, responsi and the responsibility go its action, go its action. Throughout the opening pages of dogmatics, we see the church as having a character, as having agency, as called to self-examination, as called to hope so often. And we see the negation of certainty and knowledge as well, as the central mark of our hope, our personhood, and yet in the, in, knowing, in the unknowing, in the gap, we are also confronted with a reality that we are never without this God. We are never without one another. And so the negation is not an erasure of personhood, but an elaboration of who we are and who God is. These vo the volumes of dogmatics layer upon this central claim, weaving the we and the I and the they in and out of one another, unfolding theological doctrine and loci within an all-encompassing and yet narrowing arc of God's decision to be with us, culminating in the doctrine of reconciliation explicated in volume four. 
And so while Martin Luther King might have thought Barth's notion of God too transcendent, too distant, examined through form, we begin to see the texture of Barth's thought, of how God's difference is not equivalent to distance, but is rather an assertion of proximity and a presence that animates the entirety of our context. There is no place without God. God is the plane of our being and the agent with which we act and move. God is setting and character and plot. To put it in more Bardian language, God is history. In this regard, Bart might be understood as a, liber as a liberation theologian of a sort and that the material conditions that oppress and enslave are always manifestations of a refusal of our existence within God's life. The superabundance of presence might be seen as a vital consonance in the thought of liberation theologians articulating God's radical movement and identification with them and their people. The future of Bardian thought and scholarship, perhaps, is to rediscover its liberative hope, in its constructive, performative mode. In this way, I wonder if we could say that Cohn or Jennings or Gutierrez are in fact his most faithful interpreters because they knew the future of his work did not lie in parsing a dialectic or the problem of knowledge. We might say that liberation theologians such as James Cohn deepen the significance of Barth's observation regarding, for example, the way of the Son of God into the far country, for instance. Here, Cohn narrates the communication of idioms, um, the movement of the divine word into human flesh, not in terms of redemption, but puts it in even sharper relief regarding its political implications. Redemption is political. Cohn writes, according to the New Testament, Jesus is the man for others who views his existence as inextricably tied to other men, to the degree that his own person is inexplicable apart from others. Here, think hypostatic union. And the other, of course, refer to all men, especially the oppressed, the unwanted of society, the sinners. He is God himself coming into the very depths of human existence for the sole purpose of striking off the chains of slavery, thereby freeing man from ungodly principalities and powers that hinder his relationship with God. Conceive the significance of this. How do we conceive of the significance of this turning? For Cone, Jesus is hypostatically bound not only to humanity, but to the poor. And now notice how Cone's invocation of, a of the hypostatic union here. It is God's movement into humanity that is redemptive. God taking up human existence and life into his own life, and thus imparting upon it a redemptive reality that sets the captives free, but does so through presence. But Cohn radicalizes this movement even further, suggesting, quote, Jesus' work is essentially one of liberation. Becoming a slave himself, he opens realities of human existence formerly closed to man. Through an encounter with Jesus, man now knows the full meaning of God's action in history and man's place within it. It is a message about the ghetto and all other injustices done in the name of democracy and religion to further the social, political, and economic interests of the oppressor. In Christ, God enters human affairs and takes side with the oppressed. Their suffering becomes his, their despair, divine despair. 
Through Christ, the poor man is offered freedom now to rebel against that which makes him other than human. End quote. Now, if the inv invocation of the communicatio irmatum in a political register was not explicit enough, Cohn finally delivers the punchline. This is black power, he says. They want the grip of white power removed, what black people have in mind when they cry freedom now, now and forever. Is this not why God became man in Jesus Christ, so that man might become what he is? End quote. This is the groundwork which would lead Cohn to claim that Jesus is black, of course. Cohn is not asserting the, the, the cultural question of Thurman, of Howard Thurman and Jesus and the Disinherited, but is now deploying the theological intuition of the creeds to suggest that not only did Christ take up human nature, but a human situation. And in this moment brings God's freedom to those for whom such freedom has been systemically deprived. To live, quote unquote, in Christ for Cohn is to live into the situation of the oppressed and the possibility of their redemption in the political realities of the world. Now read through Cohn's use and a subsequent critique of Bart, we can begin to see that Bart's epistemological question was one that was not universal, but contextual. Cohn's struggle with the legacy of colonialism was to explicate the underside of epistemological pronouncements of power. But I return to Bart because in him, I see a more fundamental question and some possible answers to this question. How do we become free? How do we apprehend the fullness of what God has done and bear witness to those truths in our lives and work? So here I want to suggest the notion of a literary theology is a way forward, perhaps the most Bardian way forward. And this is that a literary theology is a liberating theology. Pointing again to James Cone, if theologians wish to retain the dialectic of story as a crucial ingredient of the gospel message, then their language about that message must speak less of philosophical principles and more of concrete events in the lives of people. And if we accept the one to whom the Bible points, then we know that the validity of our stories in the world is dependent upon God's affirmation of us as God's own possession. God's story becomes our story through the faith made possible by the grace of God's presence with us. Now at stake for me is a question of what could theology gain from writers alongside critics? How do we begin to do this literary theology well? How do we follow Bart? Perhaps we actually don't follow Bart at all. Perhaps we actually turn to the novelists, to poets. And here I want to think along a distinction that Annie Dillard makes between writers and critics. She writes, a work of fiction is indeed interpretive in the special sense that it is by intention an object to be interpreted. Unlike the critic who intends his interpretation to be near the level of a final say, and who does not at any rate expect the world to devote much energy to analyzing his interpretation, the fiction writer intends his work to be a primary object. He intends it to be interpreted. She goes on to suggest the writer is certainly interested in the art of fiction, but perhaps, no, perhaps less so than the critic is. The critic is interested in the novel, the novelist is interested in his neighbors. 
Perhaps even more than in his own techniques then, the writer is interested in knowing the world in order to make real and honest sense of it. He worries the world and probes it. He collects the world and collates it. No part of it is outside of his field, end quote. To stumble towards a literary theology is to stop and ask, who is writing? And by, write, by writing, I mean, who is creating? We are being clear that the task of writing is a creative, generative practice, bringing something that was not into being. And secondly, we ask, what are we making? And for what end? And so a literary theology is the invocation of a writer of one whose life is attuned and tuning to those around them in the world that they live in. Perhaps literary theology is constantly emerging from the questions and observations that they see among them. To do literary theology is to see the world in a particular way and hone the craft of drawing others into that vision, not through coercion, but through beauty, by display, through story, through invitation. My oldest son, after coming home from an art lesson, I asked him what he learned to draw. He told me, Dad, we don't learn to draw things. We learn how to see. <laughs> and he told me how his teacher taught him to see shade instead of lines, light instead of colors, that art was translating these through various mediums, conveying them and reconfiguring them. The literary theologian cannot write of God without writing of the world, cannot write of ideas without discerning light and shade. But as well, literary theology suggests what is created is to be interpreted. It presumes interpretation, demands it even. It asks to be entered into, but does not and cannot dictate what will be gleaned by the reader while they occupy the space that you've created. Like Bonaventure's reflection on the incarnation, a literary theology invites the reader into the room. And in this regard, the writer does not try to exorcise the unknown, turning on every lamp in the house to ensure that there is no corner without shadow or, converse, or, or conversely shuts off everything so that you, only the corner you want is, can be seen. Here, think about very good, exhaustive dissertations. Very specific. Says everything. Right? And so some might wander in and become fixated on the frayed orange leather chair in the corner that still smells like cigarettes and sherry that your grandmother enjoyed religiously every day at 4 o'clock. Others may hover around the ceramic elephants your partner insists on bringing back from every trip that they take. The writer does not get to decide. In this way, a literary theology subjects itself to the world, to the readers in ways that are discomforting and holy. It is a theology that offers itself to the readers. But knowledge or lack of knowledge is still wielded by this writer. I am not suggesting a lazy vagueness or lack of skill and clarity of insight. The writer puts you in this room with these people. Unknowing is eased out with craft and intention. Drops of light 
um, under doors or through gaps or in curtains. The writer has, has, just, has set just far enough apart. And isn't this what makes artists, writers, lasting in their presence? Not simply what they said about the human condition, but their ability to draw us into that situation of truth. And so there are novelists and poets who do this theological work in profound and meaningful ways. What I don't mean in my comments thus far is to suggest that this, um, this kind of work, broadly speaking, is not being done by artists, or that artists cannot be theologians. My question is, what happens when theology begins to traverse this dichotomy? The theologian, or what qualifies a person to be a theologian, is not simply a knowledge of what artists have produced, or what other theologians have written, but rather how the interrelationship between our social locations and the people we find ourselves in with. What happens when the theologian has to see the world as artists do? What if the theologian is called to create and hone their craft in a way that does not require the accumulation of knowledge, or at least knowledge in the ways that the Western Academy has conceived it? But rather, a literary theologian has something unique to contribute that the artist may or may not, that has been gleaned from dinners, movements, cousins, um, listening with others. I wonder how theological thought in writing becomes reimagined when some theologians take up their work as art. In my view, the artistic process begins to bridge the difficulty in theology, overcoming its, dichotomy, its dichotomous tendencies, flesh or spirit, beauty or ugliness, sacred or profane. The artistic process must make sense of dichotomies through a material process. Something is the end result of the artistic act whether a story or a painting, a song, a rock sculpted into a new form. There are not neat, easily delineated distinctions argued within discrete sections and paragraphs, a process of dissection and analysis. No, colors must be mixed. They must be layered upon a canvas. The strings of the guitar have to be struck or pressed, sometimes slapped to draw out sound loud and quiet, smooth and sharp from its body. The paradoxes and contrasts are bound up together through the manipulation and relationship to the materials in front of you, their limits and their possibilities, and are intended to be received and interpreted by the totality of our senses. But in this process, the dual ties and dichotomies are not collapsed into one another into a muddy cacophony, but are woven on top of and under one another. The whole being being called beautiful. Beautiful because it causes us to see in new ways, captures the best of us, us in the world, or beautiful because it names our pain so truthfully, allowing us to find a modicum of control when suffering makes us feel like we have none. To be able to name our affliction can also give us hope. It is beautiful because it names our pain and reminds us that, we are, that in our living, our surviving in the face of it, we too are more beautiful than we had first imagined possible. Now my hope in beginning to articulate the shape of a literary theology is to make sense of my own work to some extent. 
but also begin to chart a path or an invitation for theologies that can speak to the violence or marginalization of the world in ways that are not simply accessible or simplified, but incarnate, that speak and teach by how they enter into the world and, and, and through the worlds they invite their reader into. I don't think this is the sole arena of artists, in fact. But in many ways, perhaps, is this the fundamental task of any faithful theology? To reflect the nature of the one who animates its existence. And this but this posture makes our relationship to ideas a difficult one, doesn't it? In my writing class, my professor would often chide me for start starting with an idea. It's about the character, Brian, she would say to me. And I've read similar challenges in Diller, describing writers who begin with ideas and had to struggle and kick to get ideas in their most obvious forms into, the, into places in their text. The story, plot, character, those are primary, my teacher would remind me. If a novel is about an idea primarily, it will read like a polemic. It is not art, and they're right. It seems to me that this is the most pernicious difficulty in conceiving of a literary theology. We trade in ideas, right? Theology is a discipline of ideas, or at least that is how it's held in place by the academy and too often the church. Erecting scaffolding of intersecting doctrines and their histories and rationales to give us a sense of placidness. But is it even possible to return to the bodied offering that literature often provides? I think there are ways forward. In an introduction to a collection of photographer Robert Bergman's portraits, Toni Morrison wrote, quote, occasionally there arises an event or a moment that one knows immediately will forever mark a place in the history of artistic endeavor. Robert Bergman's portraits represent such a moment, such an event. In all its burnished majesty, his gallery refuses us unearned solace. And one by one, each photograph unveils us, asserting a beauty, a kind of rapture that is as close as can be to a master template of the singularity, the community, the unextinguishable sacredness of the human race. For all of Dillard's and my teachers pressing against the presence of ideas, of writers, structures, and what they want to say being burned off, when I read Morrison, I see an opposite movement that has a similar effect. Morrison seems to press so deep into an idea that she brings it into being on the page as flesh and blood. It is material and every word oozes with it until the narrative is propelled along and before the reader even realizes it, they are drowned or quenched by its truthfulness in, our, in their lives. Like Dillard, her neighbors, her people are her concern. But perhaps differently than Dillard, Morrison understands how ideas have cleaved stories onto people's bodies. The idea of language is made plain in the first lines of Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. By the end of that paragraph, the lines have disappeared and the words collapsed into, collapse into one another. 
And by the end of the book, all capitalization, all grammar is completely absent, disorienting the reader only in a puzzle of letters. Morrison opens her narrative in Bluest Eye with a searing and unmitigating idea. There is really nothing more to say except why. But since why is so difficult to handle, one must take refuge in how. Morrison has given us the idea of language, of race, and both made them manifest in Piccola, but also displayed the impossibility of this little girl's life, of her neighbor's life being told truthfully with an essay. While Bart's work does not take up this literary task completely, I think he is, in his own way, stumbling towards it, trying somehow to voice theology in a new timbre, but I think it could also be said that it was those of us who experienced the underside of modernity's epistemological and colonial violence that inhabit what this theology can begin to look like. Namely, our bodies, like art, are the material convergence of colonial dissection. Out of our bodies, colonizers sought to draw light from dark, flesh from spirit, beauty from ugliness. The black body is created in a world imagined through dichotomies. And yet these bodies contest the dichotomy, the dichotomy and the creative contestation of living, creating, making visible our being in the midst of assertions of our non-being. Singing, painting, playing, speaking, wholeness out of our supposed in, incompleteness. The materiality the bodiliness of human existence is a theological phenomenon that perhaps only art can help us to fathom if our theology is to be true. And perhaps even more, if theology is to be true, perhaps it requires the beauty of the dark body that defiantly creates wholeness in the face of a world bent on the denial of its humanity. But even in this moment, art cannot become a panacea an illustration that falls into yet another predilection of dichotomy, art versus theology. Rather, the artistic process ushers us again and again into the difficult truth of our bodied lives. We are both need and mystery. We need others and we are saturated with mystery. We, and theology is a discovery of the possibility of our lives together and ourselves. Which brings me finally to a more explicitly theological center of a literary theology. In Christ, we see the beautiful mystery of wholeness, of word and materiality, far and near, knowing and unknowing, a body where dichotomies are knit into the world and display to us what we have done to one another, what we have done to ourselves, but also a wholeness and beauty that is both present and perpetually possible. Morrison and other literatures of the margins highlight this power of language. The conditions that generated the material life of Morrison are incarnations of language, fictions about bodies. In The Bluest Eye, The Bluest Eye finds the place where the idea and the body meet, and then traces that thread to where the idea shaped the body and, or the body resisted. What these, what these writers from the margins make visible is the illusion of the dichotomy, the notion that there is an idea without a body or a body without an idea, 
A literary theology asks us to struggle with these possibilities in our theological writing, in our vocations as people who write about God and who, are, and who write about what this world might be. A literary theology is not simply a creative theology or an artful theology. It is a liberative theology that asks us to see the world, to speak and write in ways that break apart hegemony, that evoke silence, that destabilize our notions of God and self and world. And so here I want to close my time returning to the image that Bart returned to so often, standing at the Isenheim altar. For Bart, theology always points towards God. But I have also suggested that we are nonetheless in the picture, a part of the story, somehow bound to the one who is bound on the cross. But we must ask, which God is John pointing to? I ask this because when you open the altarpiece, we are again confronted with Christ. We see the hunch, and if you want to, if you want to take a look at your phones, what I'm referring to here is the resurrection image on the inside of the Isenheim altarpiece. Um, if you want to take out your phone, I'm used to, I have undergrads always like, Dr. Barron, it's not on my phone, it doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> but I want us to come to think about this one, because in this image, right, we see the hunched back of a Roman soldier, stunned or humbled. We see the face of Christ transfigured, recognized, recognizable but obscured in glory and light. We see him hovering above death, skin healed of its sores, the wounds of subjection now pouring out spirit, hope, the truth of what all wounds might become. But where is John, or Mary, or Jesus's mother? They are present in the, in the color, Christ clothed in them, in their red and orange and white. We are with him, risen and whole. To put this image in Bart's own words, God chooses not to be God without us. Taken together, Grunewald offers us a liberation theology, images that point to a God who identifies with our affliction, takes upon himself our isolation and pain, and offers himself and us up to God for restoration. In the risen Christ, we see the one healed, liberated from bondage, in the fullness of his identity revealed, and we are with him, in him, in his freedom. As we begin to imagine the future of Bardian theology, I hope it is not simply his ideas that we seek to explicate. Is it possible that the future of Bardian theology resides in a risk? The risk that the theologian becomes visible in his or her writing. That they might unveil the limitations and contextuality of the words that they've written spoken or taught? Is it possible that liberation is not possible as long as we stand apart, point, pointing towards? Is it possible that liberation only comes when we allow the presence of the resurrected one to draw us into a transfiguration of our person, where our words might be clothed in flesh? And so I want to close here, I know I'm a little over my time, simply with perhaps a performance of this, um, lest I be accused of simply talking about Bart. I want to suggest that maybe this is what a literary theology might look like and invite you into its liberative possibilities. A reflection on the, on the Annunciation. She heard a voice. So Mary stepped away from the fire 
And as the dirt fell dim, she, let the cool, she felt the cool falling down like rain slipping off branches until the ground was black and the air was cool and damp. She heard it again, her name, but maybe not. She didn't really hear as much felt the tone of her name, the way she hears her mother's when she calls, never registering her own name, but knowing who it was that called her before the sound even ceases. And so Mary was already on her way. But her mother was not there that night. Mary, she, now she prayed. She fell to her knees and ran her fingers through the dirt as she whispered, her breaths coming quicker now. And she felt her robes cling to her side as her name became a song, favored, child. How can this be, she says. What about days that came and went with the fruit of our work filling other men's baskets? Even as she thought of the promises of Abraham and Sarah, the word mingled with the memory of soldiers marching and swords and spears and the bloodied bellies of her people on their tips. She heard her name and saw it tilted towards marriage and children and a decent man's wife. She sat quiet, even as promise was already knitting into muscle and bone, a word pulling and sewing, saying, I want you to teach me to pray. I want your life to be the one I follow with my eyes as the world becomes known to me. I want to feel the tremor of your voice when we walk among the throngs who hunger and thirst. She sat just a bit longer, then began to whisper, how can this be? To see my beginning and my end conceived within me. Yes, she says a bit more loudly now. Yes, as she sits up and steps back towards the fire, hemming in the holy of holies tightly behind the curtain of her robes. Thank you. <laughs>